Morning. Good to see you guys. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Have you ever, um, you ever came across somebody who you thought had kind of a smug spirituality? No show of hands. No hitting of your spouse's ribs. <laughs> but because they had a kind of a smug spirituality, they looked down their noses at everybody else. They looked down their noses at everybody who they thought wasn't as committed to the Lord as maybe they were. And therefore, when they do that, they just kind of have a smug, there's a sense of a smug sense of spirituality. Or maybe, maybe it went right past smugness to becoming a jerk for Jesus. I got to tell you, there's a lot of jerks for Jesus. And you can identify those. Those are a little bit easier to identify. You'll see them on the street corner with a turn or a burn sign. Or it's Westboro Baptist Church picketing uh, a military funeral. Or maybe it's a co-worker who has a big old Bible on his, his desk, a big old chip on his shoulder, and a tiny little heart beating inside of his chest. A self-proclaimed great witness for the Lord who everybody tries to avoid and nobody wants to have lunch with. There's all that. There's, it's easy to recognize it in others. However, it's not as easy to recognize it in ourselves. Have you noticed that? When you become a little bit too smug spiritually, it's not as easy to recognize it in ourselves. Um, because we all have blind spots. We all have sin spots. And when they mix, they become dangerous. And they become deadly. It's a deadly combination. Well, in Luke chapter 18, you can go ahead and turn there. Jesus confronts this attitude in others. And what he does is he challenges us to confront this attitude in ourselves. Because we're all prone to it. And so he will tell a parable that will confront this. So Luke chapter 18. As you know, we're taking the next... Uh, last week, this week, and the next week, looking at three of Jesus' most shocking parables. I don't know if you know, but Jesus liked to offend people. And so he would share, share parables from time to time that would utterly shock his audiences. He makes some of his most pointed statements through the use of parables. And a parable, in case, in case you didn't know, is a parable is a, a, a simple story that illustrates a large truth or a couple of large truths. And Jesus would oftentimes share parables. I told you this last week, uh, 33% of everything we have of Jesus comes by way of parables. And so he oftentimes would, would uh, share and teach through parables. And sometimes his, his parables, they will illustrate truth by comparison. Sometimes they'll illustrate truth by contrast. But parables, what they do is they, they have a way of engaging our hearts and our minds. And they draw us in because of the characters. And, and they go down smoother than just straight propositional truth. This is why most Americans are taught these days, um, more so through watching movies than reading a book. Right? 
We, we Americans, watch far more movies than we read books. Um, and we're taught more through stories of movies than we are through propositional truth of, of books. And so Jesus, Jesus knows this truth, of course, and so he teaches a lot by parables. And he teaches, and anyone who has the nerve to listen, more often than not, they were stunned by what he said, by the truth that he would convey. And so in our text this morning, we're gonna need, we're gonna see another instance of this reality. Jesus will share a simple story, and it's a straightforward contrast. And the people in his audience would have recognized the characters and who they represent Really, really easily. But then Jesus will put a twist on the back end of it that shocks everybody and causes everybody to question what they thought they knew to be true. And so let's jump into the parable. Uh, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. And we're going to work through verse 14, which means it's five verses. And right now there might be a little bit of a glimmer of a hope in your heart that we'll get out on time. We'll see. Um, there, there's so much in these five verses. And so I'm going to slow down and read them. And we're going to work through them just verse by verse. Because Jesus is a master storyteller. And each line conveys and teaches so much. And you gotta, you got to slow down and really read it. So Luke chapter 18, or yeah, Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. What we're going to see is we're going to see two people, two prayers, two destinies, And then I'll close with two points. So, get into the text. Here we go. Verse 9, chapter 18. He also, Jesus, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So Luke tells us this parable is addressed to those who are self-righteous. And because they were self-righteous, they had a sense of spiritual smugness. And they treated other people with contempt. And you got to remember that when, as Jesus was doing his ministry, as he traveled from town to town, from village to village, there were always people around him who were curious about who Jesus was. And they came to um, kick the tires spiritually, so to speak. And so you would have around Jesus, anywhere he went, you would have around Jesus his apostles, the 12 guys who lived with him and ministered with him. And then you would have other disciples, both men and women, who were committed to Jesus and let his words and his ways shape their reality. But then you would also have people who were skeptical of him. And more so, you would have some who were hostile towards him. And who were hostile of his message that said righteousness, that which you need to become acceptable to God, um, isn't something you earn. It's something that's given to you by the grace of God, they were hostile towards that message because it was completely at odds with, with uh, Israel's religious leadership. And this is what Jesus is going to illustrate in this parable. This parable is going to address how exactly is one saved? How exactly does one become acceptable and able to come into God's presence? And so Jesus is going to illustrate this truth. And he's going to do it by, as I said, presenting two people who are complete opposites and who pray completely different things. And as a result, they have completely different destinies. So look at verse 10. This is the parable proper. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
So Jesus, he introduces us to the characters of the parable. And one's a Pharisee, and if you've been with us any length of time, you'll be tempted to automatically cast the Pharisee as a bad guy in the text. But that you got to know, that is not how Jesus' original audience would have thought of the Pharisees. They would not have thought of them as the bad guys. They would have. The Pharisees were some of the most respected people in all of Israel. Um, they were a sincere group of laymen who really tried to uh, to honor God with their with their lives. Let me give you a couple of terms that kind of would describe the Pharisees, and you can decide if you would think if they would be a good guy or a bad guy. They were very biblical. The Pharisees were very biblical, meaning they took the Bible very seriously. In fact, way more seriously than most of their contemporaries. So they were scripture-toting, Bible-quoting people. Very, very biblical. Now, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? This is the interactive part where we interact. Scripture-toting, Bible quoting. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, okay, good. I'm glad to hear that in church. They were... They, see, you would like this. You would think, yeah, this is great. They, they love their Bible. Secondly, they were very moral. They felt morality was being comp- compromised, and so they sought to separate themselves from the rest of the society. They sought to uphold uh, morality in their culture. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? We would say that's a, that's a good thing. They were very conservative. They felt traditional values had fallen away by the wayside. They felt they had, uh, traditional values had fallen by the wayside. And so they resisted that in both word and deed. Is that good or bad? Good. You see, now see, now listen. You would want a Pharisee as your next door neighbor. Why? Well, because they're gonna help hold up your property values. You would want a Pharisee to marry your daughter. Why? Probably not going to cheat on her. Probably not where she's going to end up back at your house six months later. See, when you put yourself in the mind of a modern day Jewish, or modern day, an ancient Jewish person, these guys were highly esteemed by the people for their piety and their devotion to the Mosaic law. And that's how you need to picture them as Jesus begins this story. So he says, one, the, one of the people that walks into the temple during one of the, one of the uh, set times of prayer was a Pharisee. Now the second person Jesus introduces us to in the parable is that of a tax collector. And again, if you've been with us any length of time, you probably know that the tax collectors were some of the most despised and rejected people. My mic is giving me all sorts of problems. Were, were one of the most despised and rejected people, hated people in Israel. They were collaborators with Rome. And they were thieves and they were crooks. Um, they would overcharge people. They would make a bid to get, collect taxes and then anything over the tax that they collected, they could pocket it for themselves. And they had the power of Rome behind them to enforce it. And so they were thieves and they were crooks. They were getting rich Jews were getting rich on the backs of their countrymen for on behalf of the Romans. They were considered traitors to their nation. And because their nation was a theocracy, you know what that automatically meant? They were considered a traitor before God. 
If your nation's a theocracy and you're a traitor to your nation, you're automatically a traitor against God. And people despise them for their work. Um, they would view tax collectors in that culture, they would view tax collectors as whatever you think is the worst person in our culture. And my hunch is the worst person in your mind, as you think about it, is probably a sex trafficker or an abortion doctor. That's exactly how the people of Israel would have felt about a tax collector. They couldn't be judges. Um, they couldn't be witnesses in court. And both the liberal wing of Judaism and the conservative wing of Judaism said that it was good and prudent and acceptable to lie to a tax collector. <laughs> How much do you have to be hated for both sides of the religious spectrum to say, no, go ahead and lie to that person? So if you were a Jewish person and the second person Jesus introduces in the story is a tax collector, all the rage and all the animosity that you feel about those tax collectors would come flooding into your mind. And so Jesus tells us in verse 10 that the Pharisee and the tax collector, they made their way into the temple to pray. And note the order that's mentioned here. It's the Pharisee who's mentioned first. So they both went into the temple to participate in the daily public worship. Um, at both 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. in Jerusalem, all the Jews living in Jerusalem would make their way into the temple for the daily sacrifice. They would enter, they would enter into the temple courts where the lamb would be sacrificed to cover the sins of the people. And the incense would be burnt, which would then ascend into the heavens. And then one of the priests would come forward and he would offer the benediction. He would offer the Aaronic blessing, which would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and the Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. And then the people, once all of this had taken place and the sin had been covered through the sacrifice of the lamb, then and only then could they approach God with prayers of thanksgiving and prayers of petition. And as Jesus is telling the story, all of this is in the background of his audience. They know all of this. And so the Pharisee and the tax collector, they make their way to the temple. So there's two people, two people who couldn't be bigger polar opposites. And now we're going to see their two prayers, which will reveal how contrasting their heart attitudes are of these two men. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, God, I thank you. What is he thanking for? That I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes. Of all that I get. Look, oh, there's so much here in just these two verses here. Look at this. Notice, first of all, the Pharisee stood by himself. Did you notice that? In the NIV and in the King James, they render it, he prayed to himself or he prayed about himself. But I think the ESV renders it rightly when it says he was standing by himself in a gesture of religious superiority. This gesture of religious superiority, he stands apart from the other worshiper, the other worshipers, because in his mind, he was clean. 
And if he were to accidentally bump up against some tax collector or some other Jewish person who had failed to observe every aspect of the law, he automatically would become unclean. And so he separates himself from the rest of the group of people. And he starts to pray. And notice Notice his prayer. Look at it again, verse 11. He's standing by himself. He prayed, thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, prayer in that culture was a lot like prayer in our culture. Primarily, it was the offering of thanksgiving and praise to God for all of his gifts. And then it was to be petitions to God for the worshiper needs, for the worshiper's needs. And this guy does neither of these things. He does neither of these things. Look at what he does. He doesn't thank God for his many good gifts, nor does he make any requests. But rather, what does he do? He boasts. He boasts in his self-achieved righteousness. He says, God, I'm not like these guys. These extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers. And then he gives a kind of a sideways glance over the, uh, the tax collector or like this tax collector. He says, look at what he says in verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. And you know what that is? That's going above and beyond what the law required because the law required a Jewish person to fast one day a year on the day of atonement on Yom Kippur. That's, that's when all of the Jews would fast. But for this man and for a, a group of Pharisees, um, that wasn't enough. They wanted to become radical. And so they went above and beyond what the law required. And they fasted twice a week. And then he goes on, he says, second part of verse 12, he says, I give tithes of all that I get. And again, that was going above and beyond what the law said. Because the law said you only needed to tithe on your grain, your wine, and your oil. But the Pharisees, they started tithing on everything. I mentioned this last week. Um, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, you're, you're tithing on your mint, your, um, your, your, oh yeah, your mint, your rue, and your cumin. Meaning, they're, they're tithing on all of their cooking herbs. They were so fastidious that they were tithing on their cooking herbs. The Pharisee, what he was doing was he was basing his righteousness on his morality. That's what he's doing. He's basing his righteousness on his morality, saying, I'm better than these guys. And so he's basing it on his morality and his religiosity. He's saying, I've exceeded the law's demands. He's basing his entire relationship with God on his morality and his religiosity. I'm better than these guys. I've done more than what the law demands. He feels really good about himself. He's earned, he's thinking to himself, I've earned my righteousness. I don't really even need God in this equation. Because I can do it myself. Thank you very much. I can be very moral. I can be very religious. I can do all of life on my own without the Lord. I'll come and I'll sing a song. I'll do a dance. But I'm, do, I'm basing my whole life on my own morality and my religious my religious commitment. And now, Jesus contrasts the Pharisee's prayer with that of the tax collector's prayer. And look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, 
But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Hmm. Jesus says that when, the te- when he sees the tax collector, he's standing far off. Meaning he didn't even consider himself worthy enough to stand before God's people and before God's altar. And so he stands in the back. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast. And that's a sign of extreme anguish. you got to know that in the ancient culture, only women would beat their breast at the loss of, of a child or some other type of extreme situation. But here's this man, this tax collector. He's at the temple. He's so... Um, he's so broken up, overwhelmed and broken by his sin that he's beating his breast. And look again at verse 13. He says, God be merciful to me. This tax collector, it doesn't come across, um, unless you know your Old Testament really well, what he's saying is he's echoing King David's prayer in Psalm 51. When David repents, finally repents of his sin with Bathsheba. And the word he uses for merciful here, it's an interesting word. It's a very unique word. It's the only time that it's used in the gospel accounts. He says, be merciful to me. And that word he uses at its, at its root, it combines the idea of propitiation, which is the turning away of wrath. It's the turning away of wrath through a sacrifice. So it combines the idea of propitiation and it combines, it combines it with the term expiation, which is the freeing of a sinner from the punishment that his sins deserve. Now, now again, this is the only time it's used in the gospel and put all of it in, in its context. Here's by what Jewish standards is one of the worst people in the world. One of the absolute worst people in the world. And he's, he's at the temple and the, and the, and most uh, tax collectors wouldn't even go to the temple. But this guy has the courage to go into the temple. He's overwhelmed by God's holiness and the sacrifice of the lamb that's been offered. And he's praying, oh God, let that sacrifice be made for me. I'm a sinner. I know I am with no righteousness of my, of my own. Nothing to merit my relationship with God. No, no works, no righteous works, no nothing. Make atonement for me, Lord. Cover my sins. Cover my sins. Free me from the wrath that I know I deserve. He has nothing to rely upon other than the atoning sacrifice that's been made. No morality, no religiosity, no piousness, nothing. What does he have to do? He has to throw himself on the mercy based on the sacrifice that's been made. So Jesus contrasts these two prayers Contrast the two men, contrast the two prayers, and now in verse 14, he contrasts their destinies. Look at verse 14. Jesus wraps up the story. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember, at the start of the parable, Jesus mentions that the Pharisee went up first, right? I mentioned that. But now he tells us that the tax collector 
went down from the temple first. So this great reversal has taken place. And the one who thought he was an insider in the kingdom of God, the Pharisee, is actually finding out that he's an outsider. And the one who everyone considered to be an outsider is actually an insider in the kingdom of God, simply based on what he prays. And Jesus says, look at what he says. It's just amazing. Jesus says, this man, the tax collector, this tax collector, the worst people in the world, he went to his house justified. Now that's a huge theological word that only gets bantered about in churches. But here's what justified means. It means you have been completely declared righteous. Declared righteous. Doesn't mean you're actually righteous in and of yourselves. It means in God's sight, the judge of the earth looks at you and says, you're righteous. Catch that. Jesus says, this man, the tax collector, the one who everybody considers an outsider in the kingdom of God, because he has thrown himself on my mercy, he has believed in the sacrifice, this guy's actually an insider in the kingdom of God. That's, you guys don't look amazed by that. This is amazing news. The worst person in the world comes to the temple in humility. He believes God. He confesses his sins. He petitions God for mercy. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. Now catch the next four words. What are the next four words? Rather than the other. And that's the surprise twist in this story. The one that everybody considered an insider in the kingdom of God, based on his morality, based on his religiosity, Jesus is saying, no, he's actually an outsider. This Pharisee, by all outward appearances, appears to be righteous. He appears to be in a right relationship with God. He actually isn't. Why? Because all along, he's trusting in himself. He's never trusted in the Lord. All along, he's trusting in himself. He's trusting in his morality and his righteousness. While this tax collector who has nothing to offer God is completely justified. Simply through repentance and genuine faith in the atoning work of God through the sacrifice. And Jesus closes out this teaching by saying, look at the second part of verse 14. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself, the one who admits he's spiritually bankrupt, will be exalted. Jesus says those who humble themselves and truly trust in God's mercy will be exalted in the next age. In the next age, they'll be exalted. And those who exalt themselves, who boast of their own righteousness, they will be humbled in the next age. Do you see how shocking this parable is? It is absolutely shocking. It would have stunned Jesus' audience. This parable, what it would have done is it would have devastated those who trusted in themselves. Would have absolutely devastated anybody and everybody in that age and in this age. It should devastate anybody who trusts in themselves. But at the same time, it should bring immense joy and hope. For anybody who says, I have nothing to base my relationship with the Lord on other than his mercy. You see, everything in this parable is contrasts. Two people, completely different. Two prayers that show their heart attitudes are completely different. Two destinies 
that will be radically different. So let me close here by pulling on two threads of the two contrasting ways of trying to live with God. Two contrasting ways of trying to live with God that we see in the parable. The first way is the way of external righteousness. The first way that many people try to live with God is the way of external righteousness. This is outside-in living where you're trying by your moral effort uh, and by your religiosity to earn your righteousness. This is outside-in living. And here's the deal. And a lot of people try it. This is the idea of climbing the ladder up to God. A lot of people will try it. If, and here's the deal. If you think you can earn righteousness through external works, it will crush you. It will absolutely crush you. This, And by the way, this is the way of religion. It'll crush you if you think salvation comes by way of external uh, external righteousness that you have to do. Because what, what you will automatically think is, i got to do this. And i got to do that. And I have to evangelize this much. And I have to tithe that much. And a, and a lot of Christians fall into this mentality. So the question then becomes, well, how can you identify if you've slipped into outside-in living, where you think your relationship with the Lord is based on your external righteousness. How can you tell if you've slipped into that mentality? And it's easy to do. I think all of us, if you've been a Christian any length of time, we slip in and out of this all the time. Well, how can you identify it? Well, there's some tells. Um, you know how poker players... Can I talk about poker on Sunday? Uh, you know how poker players, especially bad ones, they have a tell? One of my good friends is a professional poker player. And uh, he's won hundreds of thousands of dollars playing poker, and he's lost hundreds of thousands of dollars playing poker. But he told me one time, he said, amateur poker players always will have a tell. They'll always have a tell. It's um, When they're bluffing, they'll, they'll have a tell. Either they'll, they'll touch their face a certain way, or their uh, eyebrows will furrow when they're when they're bluffing. He goes, but all poker players, bad ones especially, um, amateur ones, will will have a tell. You just got to be on the lookout for it. Well, so if you're playing at religion, uh, what's your tell? How can you tell? Uh, people who play at religion, they have a tell. So let me give you three of them. If you're trying to live with the Lord on the basis of your external righteousness, you'll tend towards these things and see if you identify with them. Here's, you'll tend towards a couple of different things. Here's the first one. You'll tend to be prideful, but not grateful. If you're basing your relationship with the Lord on your external righteousness, one of the ways you can tell is most people will tend to become prideful, but not grateful. I don't know if you noticed in the parable, but when the Pharisees started praying, he used the personal pronoun, I, five times in two verses. And that's just it. His whole relationship with God is rooted in what he's done. And if your relationship with the Lord is rooted in what you've done for him, it'll make you, if you're doing well, if you're living up to your own standards, it'll make you incredibly prideful. Incredibly prideful. Because I've done this and I've done that and I've done this other thing. And this person over here, they're not living up to my standards. They're not living up to the demands. So you'll become incredibly prideful. Now flip it over. If your relationship with the Lord is based on what he's done, 
through the sacrifice of the true lamb, Christ Jesus, then your life will be lived in a state of perpetual gratefulness. And whatever good thing you do for the Lord, you'll do it not out of, not out of a posture of I'm, I'm earning my way into God's favor. No, no, no. It'll be in response to the righteousness that's already been given to you. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Um, so the first sign of trusting in oneself is you'll tend to be prideful but not grateful. Here's the second one. You'll tend to be restless in your relationship with the Lord. You'll tend to be restless in your relationship with the Lord, but not restful. You'll, turn to be, you'll tend to be restless, but not restful. If you think your relationship with the Lord is based upon your religious discipline and your external works, you know what you'll do? You'll work and you'll work and you'll work and you'll work and you'll work, 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 work. You'll always be striving to earn God's favor. You'll always be striving to earn God's favor. Always striving to prove yourself. And you'll never be secure in your relationship with the Lord. Why? Because you'll never know if you've done enough. You'll never know if you've done enough. And again, if you're doing well in your relationship, in keeping up with the demands, if you're doing well with keeping up all the law's demands, you'll become incredibly arrogant. But if you're failing to live up to the law's demands, what will happen? You'll become despondent. You'll live in a state of despair. You'll fluctuate between arrogance and despair. If you think your relationship with the Lord is based on your morality, it's based on your religiosity, your religious discipline, your effort, you'll always go, you'll swing. You'll be like a pendulum. Am I doing well keeping up with the law's demands? Great, I'm over here and I'm arrogant and pompous. If I'm doing poorly, I'm over here. I'm in despair because I'm not living up to the law's demands. You'll always be swinging back and forth. You'll never actually be resting and secure in your relationship with God. Does that make sense to you guys? That's, that's always the case. So if you're seeking to live with the Lord through your external righteousness, you'll tend to be prideful but not grateful. You'll tend to be restless but not resting in your relationship with the Lord. Here's the third thing. Hmm. You'll tend to be critical of others. You'll, t- you'll tend to be critical of others, but not moved with compassion for others. You'll be critical of others, but never moved with godly compassion for others. We'll compare. What you'll do... Um, by the way, the reason I can speak on all of this with su- such authority is because I have done all of these things. Um, this, I'm, like, I'm preaching my life to you. Um, you'll, what you'll do is you'll compare your virtues against other people's vices. You'll compare your virtues to other people's vices, which is exactly what this Pharisee does. He says, thank you, God, that I'm not an extortioner. An extortioner. I'm, not an, I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector. He says, no, 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 look at me. I'm very moral. I'm very religious. And what you'll do is you'll adopt a critical spirit of others. And you'll always look for ways to grade on the curve. You'll always look for ways to put another person down in order to prop yourself up spiritually. And so you'll be critical of others, but not moved with godly concern and compassion for others. Because again, notice where the Pharisee stood. He stood apart from everybody else. He was unwilling, and because he had adopted a critical spirit, he was unable 
to get his hands dirty by associating with people that he considered a sinner. He considered to be far off from God. And you can tell. See, this is the, this is the tell. You can tell if you've become critical of others without actually having a godly compassion for others because you'll be unwilling. And again, because you've adopted a critical spirit, you'll be unable to connect with people who are far from God because it might just throw in the doubts. It might just throw in the minds of others, uh, a doubt about how righteous you really are. And so you'll say, well, I can't associate with those people. Because if I do, my group over here will think that I'm not all that great. They'll think that I'm not very spiritual. Plus, you know, it's just a lot easier to feign concern by being critical. It's just a lot easier to feign concern by being critical of others. But don't you see, that's the complete opposite way of Jesus. It's the complete opposite way of Jesus. Because Jesus came from heaven to earth to identify with you. He was moved with compassion by our plight. And in love, he reached out to us where we were, no matter the cost to himself. And when the gospel actually grasped your heart and you grasp the gospel in return, what it does is it enables you to put aside a critical spirit and to move into a person's life with godly compassion, regardless of their background, regardless of the defilement that their life might have had. What Jesus teaches us through this parable is there's no hope. There's absolutely no hope to earn salvation through external works of righteousness. And what he does, now the second point of this, he contrasts the way of external righteousness with internal righteousness. Well, how does internal righteousness come about? Well, what did we see in in the parable? It doesn't come through works. Well, then how does it come? It comes through repentant faith. It comes through repentant faith. That's how it comes. The heart of this matter is a matter of the heart. This tax collector, he comes before God fully aware of his sinfulness. Fully aware of his inability to achieve God's righteousness. And so what does he do? He, he throws himself. He pleads. He pleads to the Lord on the, mer- on, the, on the basis of the atoning sacrifice. That his sins would be covered. And that he would be cleansed. And Jesus says, this man, this man went home justified. Forgiven of his sins, declared righteous. This is this is inside out living. This is inside out living where the real issue is the matter of the heart. And the person recognizes their inability to achieve righteousness through external works. And internally they recognize that and they say that I'm simply throwing myself on the mercy of the king. And because of that, he receives gifts, gift righteousness where he knows he's completely loved and he's completely accepted by the Lord. And you know what that does? When a person knows that they've been completely forgiven and they've been completely accepted by the Lord, you know what that does? It liberates a person. It completely liberates you from striving to prove yourself to resting in God's grace. It fills it fills a person with genuine gratefulness and genuine humility and it gives a person a true desire, a genuine desire to move out in Christ's love, 
to tell others of the grace of Christ that's available to them through repentant faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, in the atoning sacrifice that Jesus made. Listen, if you're here this morning and you think being a Christian is about following a bunch of rules, if you think being a Christian is about committing yourself to religious discipline, and working and working and working to try to please God in order to earn favor with God. Let me tell you, that's not what it's about at all. If you think being a Christian is about joyless living, and let's be honest, there's a lot of joyless people who identify as Christians. But if you think it's about joyless living and rule keeping, you're dead wrong about that. You're completely dead wrong about that. It has nothing to do with those things. What it does have to do with is coming to Christ Admitting that you can't live up to the law's demands, pleading for his mercy, trusting that the sacrifice he made for you at the cross was sufficient and resting in his grace. And then living with the power of the Holy Spirit within you to move out and to love people in the power of Christ. That's what being a Christian is all about. And if you're not a Christian, you can become one right now. Here's how you do it. It's super simple. The Lord made it simple. Because we are simple-minded people. The Lord made it super simple. All you have to do is acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you've screwed up. You've thought things, said things, done things that you know are wrong before God. And you have no external righteousness in and of yourselves. You acknowledge that. It's simple to do. Look at, look at the mirror. Acknowledge that. I've completely jacked up a lot of things in my life. And then you ask the Lord to forgive you of them. You say, Lord... I know that you went to the cross on my behalf to forgive me of my sins. As the, or as the tax collector did in the, in the parable, I'm pleading for your mercy to be given to me. That you would propitiate my sins, you remove them by the sacrifice, you would free me from the penalty of sin, and I would become one of your children right now. You, that's it. That's all you have to do. And the Lord will fill you. He'll give you his life. He'll give you his spirit. He'll make you one of his kids right now. What is there not to like about that? You've got to humble yourself, yes. But on the back end of it is incredible life. So let's pray. Why don't you stand? We'll pray. We'll worship. And then I'll let you go. Father, you tell us in this parable, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And it does take humility to come before you, Father, and to admit the depth of our sin. To admit that we know we have done things, said things, thought things that are wrong against you. There is a humility piece of this, Father. And so in humility, we acknowledge these things. And, Father, we plead for your mercy. We thank you for the atoning work of Jesus Christ, that you are the true lamb who has been sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. And we plead the work of the cross. And we pray, Father, that your spirit, for those who have not yet trusted you, that your spirit would come upon them and that they would pray these things, Father. And then their spirit would fill them, that you would give them new life in your name, the removal of sins and the giving of new life. What a wonderful reality. Father, please let your spirit fall fresh again.
And for thus, for those of us who have been Christians a long time, Father, would you remind us that the basis of our relationship with you is not our works. It is your work done on our behalf. And that then, Lord, we would move out in your strength. That we would go to those who are far from God in your compassion and in your love, telling of the grace that's available through repentant faith. Help us, Father, to do this well. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.